Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Tom Vanderbilt, author of Traffic. Tom's book is a fascinating exploration of why we drive the way we do and what it says about us. Read it and you'll find out if your parking strategy mimics that of the Condor or the Barn Owl, why Belgians make less safe drivers than their neighbours the Dutch, and why almost all New Yorkers jaywalk, but very few citizens of Copenhagen do. Tom presents a compelling case for viewing traffic as a subject fully worthy of our attention. But what I wondered had got him thinking about it in the first place. Uh, well, it, it, there was a moment I described in the book, and it really is sort of a stupid thing in retrospect, but I was out driving on a highway and came to a, a merge situation in which two lanes were going into one. And, and it's a very long story. I won't go fully into detail, but I changed my behavior slightly about the way I merge. And it, it just I began to think about it a little bit more and... and I, Seem that, especially in the United States, I think that these merge points were, were such sort of choke points of, of hostility and, and raid. Mm. Study even found that they were the uh, number one source of, of driver stress, according to one survey, were, were quote unquote merging difficulties. I just wondered, as someone who writes a lot about design, is this something, could a better system for merging be designed? Then, then I just started to wonder about you know, traffic psychology and, and all these assumptions I had about the way things worked on the road. And basically, it's doing a little bit of research. I realized it was really only the cliched uh, tip of the iceberg and saw that there was such a huge, vast, almost secret literature out there of traffic engineering and people who really work on these problems that I, I felt hadn't really made it to the light of, of day in, in a way that, we, that I thought was quite interesting. And so that, that's how I basically got into it, very mm. accidental. I was really struck by by that fact, just how much human ingenuity is expended on studying traffic and trying to devise systems to cope with the problems that we humans encounter when we get behind the wheel. Yeah, and, and it's, of course, an ancient problem, and, and people, these so-called traffic archaeologists who have studied Pompeii or ancient Rome have seen everything from, you know, not just, not just schemes to manage uh, the, the, the timing of traffic, for example, putting a ban on, on daytime uh, cart and chariot entries into the city and making them come in at night, which then led to the unintended consequence of people not being able to sleep. But then, you know, physical engineering such as, as bollards, I mean, there are bollards in Pompeii. You know, you can, people have studied the wear on curbstones to see which streets were one way, which way were vehicles turning. So in all aspects, traffic, even enforcement, you know, not being able to drive at a certain speed with a horse through a town, all, all these issues are sort of ancient in a way, but of course, as mobility becomes more, the world is becoming more mobile every day and, and people are shifting to all, all sorts of technologies, particularly the car, uh, which is mm. the main thing here, but uh, it, these issues become just that much more pressing. But they've sort of been with us forever, but as the world becomes more crowded and we're all wanting to go more places, they really take on a new importance, mm. I think. I mean, you say they've been with us forever, but in fact, one of the things which came out of your book to to me was the fact that we didn't evolve to to travel at high speed in in motorized vehicles. I mean, you say at one point, traffic messes with our heads. We are too human, and we are not human enough. And that seemed to me to capture very neatly this problem that we have that we don't get the usual cues and signals that we have in normal social interaction when we get behind the wheel. It's a very good point, and it raises a number of questions, one of which it's always suggested, well, you know, a lot of the, the rage out there, the hostility perhaps comes because we, we lack these traditional human signals for contact. So uh, the things that we wouldn't do in public, we then see people doing in the road, arguably because of this anonymity. So people suggest things like, well, if we could only have more signaling systems that would send 
human sort of messages, winks, nods, you can hmm. apologize through your, through your blinkers hmm. in some sort of way. So that's one argument, but the, <laughs> the counter-argument is that people often fail to use the existing signals they have. And number two, that at, at sort of a high-speed motorway environment particularly, you know, you, you don't necessarily want people engaging in more information. <laughs> it sort of functions better as an anonymous flowing system. Uh, you get into city environments when you're moving at slower speeds, and this is where the, you really sense where that human stuff has been lost, and these interesting experiments in places like the Netherlands, which have become quite famous, do rely more on these things like eye contact, being able to engage more in a lot of traffic space. And the argument there is that if you could, when those things take over, if it's all done correctly with the proper engineering, you may be able to eliminate most or all of, of the signs that have been put up, often just through, through mm. rote standardization and, and people forgotten why they were actually put up in the first place. And I, I was intrigued that um, animal behavior specialists had found human parking behavior of interest. Well, I mean, parking behavior is, is a quite fascinating thing, as, as all driving behavior, and, and a number of interesting psychological studies out there, for example, that people were found to take longer vacating their parking space at a shopping mall parking lot when someone was waiting for the space than when someone was not waiting. And they were asked in surveys whether they would do this behavior, and they said no, but that, that's something where, uh, again, with traffic, often our, our better instincts don't take over, and, and you do find these sort of other behaviors coming in. And But people who have studied, uh, wildlife biologists have actually studied parking, and it sort of fits into this thing called optimal foraging. How, how do animals find food? What, what are the best search strategies? And if you think about an animal looking for food, going to a large crowded shopping environment or even, even a city, you, you, these same questions sort of pop up. Do you, you know, is it, is it better to sort of circle endlessly looking for the, the quote-unquote best space, or do you sort of grab the first available space, even if it's on the far, far sort of periphery of the parking lot? And, uh, you know, because uh, uh, in the animal world, these things are of key importance. Obviously, if you don't eat, you don't survive. Uh, it's not quite as essential in parking, but I, I suppose to many people it is. So, again, it, these, and I should just conclude with the thought that parking is another one of these, in a way, secret sources of traffic. We don't, it's been estimated that vast amounts of, of traffic on any urban street at a particular time, particularly in U.S. cities, mm. are simply people looking for parking. Uh, and there's been some talk if we could change the way this is priced, uh, that this would send more people into lots. Uh, anyway, this is key to conquering any traffic issue is, is figuring out the parking. And you talk about national differences in driving, but you take this idea a long way beyond, you know, merely observing that Italians drive quite recklessly and Germans are, are fast but law-abiding. Because you, what I found really interesting was when you talk about this sort of idea that there is a correlation between the politics of a nation, the amount of democracy or the amount of corruption in a particular country, and the style of driving of its inhabitants. Can you say a little bit about what you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Transparency International uh, Corruption Index, which is the most sort of famous index of this sort, uh, which measures countries by you know how, how much transparency is for doing business and, and what the actual culture is, and, and sort of link that up against the global toll of road fatalities, there's a, a, a very high correlation between where a country sits on one index and sits on the other. And sometimes, I mean, the, another issue that, of course, this brings up, issue of money and, and, and GDP and thinking mm. about how much economic development there is, the poorer countries mm. have worse safety records. This is a, And they'll get better after the GDP hits a certain level. This is another 
uh, sort of surprisingly rigid law that seems to emerge in traffic. But mm. um, but I found that you know e- even countries that were quite similar in many other regards, but then had this discrepancy in traffic safety. For example, in the Netherlands and Belgium, one of the ways they were not quite similar was on the Transparency International Corruption Index, where the Netherlands was was much lower than Belgium. So I just think it translates into a larger sort of sense of respect for the law and willingness to follow the law, and and that's kind of a circular uh, relationship there as well. And um, you know, it just and this kind of flows from the traffic cop on the street all the way up to the the head mm. of state. And France used to have a situation where they were incoming new president would pardon everyone's traffic hmm. offenses for the previous year and it was sort of a just you know and, and this did not send a positive signal <laughs> no. that there was a reason to behave safely on the road and of course france has, has tackled this and, and they've tackled their enforcement and they've tack- tackled this culture of corruption and leniency and uh actually since 2000 their road fatalities have dropped 43 percent so the cliche of the sort of aggressive dangerous french driver they may still exist but they're they're definitely being reined in more and they're you know giving the u.s run for its money in, in terms mm. of safety. Looking to the future, it seemed from the book that there are ambitions to design cars out of cities in some cases, and also um, design drivers out of cars, so you have higher levels of automation. And I wondered what you thought the interesting signs were in, 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 those, um, in those two departments. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, when, when, I'm, when I'm feeling cynical about, about you know, human limitations in, in our, our behavior to comply with laws and, and our, our, our cognitive uh, limitations, perceptual limitations, just the almost inevitability that we have to make mistakes. Uh, you wonder something about you know, moving around a high speed in close proximity to one another, whether you know, this is a good idea, whether, whether mm. it would not be solved by automation. I've, mm. I've driven in a fully automated car, or rather been driven by a, a autonomous machine, and it was after about five minutes, I, I sort of relaxed and, and began to feel quite natural. I, I started fiddling hmm. with my iPhone, and, and, hmm. and that, was sort of, that was sort of that. So, you know, right now we're at that sort of semi-stage of automation where some functions of a car are becoming automated, and that creates a little bit of a user interface problem there where hmm. people still need to be called into the loop when something goes wrong. And so it, But clearly in places like aviate, commercial aviation, automation has drastically increased uh, the, the safety record. So mm. it seems logical that it would help uh, with, with cars as well. And as far as cities, yeah, I mean, again, with, with cities becoming more crowded, giving away vast amounts of roads, sp- uh, of, of urban space to cars and, and the storage of those cars, I, I think begins to seem increasingly untenable. So I, I've been interested in, obviously, we have these car sharing services already, and, and mm. uh, they're, they're talking about translating these Parisian bike-sharing schemes now to, to, to electric cars. So I, th- I think the model of the future is, is sort of, you know, a, le- le- a more shared model, a sort of smarter model with, you know, more on-demand, a, a car when you want it, not just sitting, your car parked, which in cars are parked about 95% of their, their life, they just sit parked. So that, that's an incredibly sort of wasteful uh, use of resources right there. So have, having a yeah, because there, there is still is a great attraction to to the the car, and I, I'm a car owning New Yorker, which mm. it's an insane place to own a car. Mm. Yet I do so. The, clearly, the, the appeal of point to point transportation is there, but um, I think it could just be managed much smarter, and will, in fact, will have to be. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you was: You're a car owning New Yorker. Is there one piece of driving behavior that really gets you riled that you wish you could outlaw, that you could sort of banish from the roads? One thing in particular that um 
that irritates you, would you say? Well, I think for, from a congestion point of view, that this thing called, uh, we call it blocking the box, you know, and this is the key to the problem with New York City, all, the, the traffic problems really stem at the intersections, and if you tie up the intersections, you shut down the city, and it's been estimated that if New York could be in full traffic gridlock, lockdown, full paralysis, yet more than half of its road space would actually be empty, this could just happen by the intersections being tied up. So you, you have someone thinks they can sort of make the make the green light, it turns red, they're stuck in the middle of the intersection. One person can basically shut down the entire hmm. that entire intersection and then this then backs up to the next pre- preceding intersection, creates a rippling effect. Uh, so this is this kind of dilemma between what's best for the what the individual thinks is best for themselves and what's best for uh, the system. So I mean but I could really go on about papers <laughs> everything from lack of signaling etiquette, which is, is run, running rampant here, to tailgating, to uh, speeding. I mean, don't, don't get me started, please. Mm-hmm. 